So, all right, well, hey, let's get started this morning. Any fans of Lord of the Rings? Awesome, awesome, my people right there. I'll be honest, when these came out, guys, it was 20 years ago that Return of the King came out. I didn't realize how old these movies are, right? And they're so good. And, and I, I was not a big fantasy fan. I was kind of like, that stuff is kind of weird. I don't know. But then Lord of the Rings came out, and I was like, oh, I'm hooked. Like, I remember after, after uh, uh, Fellowship of the Ring came out, I felt physically sick for a few days afterwards because, like, I got to know what happens. I had never read the books before or listened to them, <laughs> for that matter. Um, I've listened to them since. Um, but I remember just getting totally sucked in because of the character development, the plot development, the themes. I had, never, I had, I had heard of uh, Tolkien before, but I'd never really gotten into his stuff. I didn't realize that he was a strong believer. Like, he loved Jesus. And so all of a sudden now this whole new world was, was opened up. And I just loved uh, learning about it and getting engaged in it. And specifically, there was this appeal because there's this battle between good and evil, deception and truth. And Tolkien, being a follower of Jesus, put so much rich symbolism and meaning into it, specifically these Christ figures. I don't know, my, my kids and a lot of my friends always say that I read way too much into stuff. Deal with it, right? It's who I am. Um, but what's really cool is that there are several Christ figures throughout the, the whole storyline, right? Sam Gamgee. Think about it. He is the faithful friend, faithful companion, and the suffering servant. He's with us every step of the way, building us up, encouraging us, challenging us, right? He's that, he's that faithful friend and the suffering servant. Uh, Frodo, he's bearing the burden of the ring, which is, is sin, right? It's humanity's attempt to, to be God and to control in one ring, to, to rule them all, right? And, and it overcomes us. And so he bears the burden with purity, even though he's tempted, but he bears the burden and he destroys it for all eternity, never to return again, right? You have, of course, Gandalf. I love Gandalf. He has these dual identity, right? And if you get into the predecessor uh, before even the Hobbit, you realize he has this dual identity because he's both God and man, kind of an interesting take there, very intentional on Tolkien's part. He sacrifices, he's resurrected, he becomes the Savior, right? Pretty, pretty obvious. But there's also a fourth one that's, that's very, very powerful, and that's Aragorn, the glorious king. Think about it. The whole culmination of the series is Return of the King, right? Now, Aragorn, is, it's kind of interesting because we see this. He, he appears in a, in a nonchalant, unsuspecting way. He's with Strider, right? He's, he's this, this cloaked, mystical guy and is kind of like, is he good? Is he bad? What, what is he? What's going on? And, and then we see all these power plays develop through time. And, and towards the end, you see uh, specifically Grima Wormtongue, who is the chief advisor of King Theoden of Rohan, right? And, and all of my uh, LOTR fans, correct me, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing anything. I, I ask for your humble forgiveness on this. Um, but right, you know the scene, right? I was, I was going to try to find a good scene, but, but he's this deceptive, slimy, slithery, snake-like creature that that gets in the in the ear of Theoden and and he's like whispering these things and he's actually taking over King Theoden 
and, and you see the physical change, he literally starts decomposing and kind of rotting, and he has these weird scabby things, and he's just, his eyes get all weird, speaks with a weird voice and everything like that, right? And he, and he takes over Theoden's person and his rule, right? And then the powerful scene when Gandalf comes in and he overpowers Wormtongue and, and ultimately Sauron, who's behind Wormtongue. And then later on, because of that, um, Aragorn is, is revealed and ultimately crowned as king over most of Middle-earth, right? And this powerful, emotional... I was watching parts of it. I was like, dang, I gotta watch this again. All my my wife gets me. If the three three hour movies were good, the three four hour extended edition were even better. And I have the set in my home. I was like, babe, you get me. You love me so well. If twelve hours is good, you know, sixteen is even no, sorry, if, if nine hours is good, twelve hours is even better. Math is hard. Um but uh yeah, I, I love it because I feel like Tolkien, especially when he was writing, he taps into the struggle in our world. And he does such a good job of telling this power struggle, the story of, of struggle for power, right? We talk about this a lot, but our world is a constant struggle of powers. Good, evil, light, darkness, um, truth, deception, all these things, and, and there's so many people and things and agendas and groups that are battling for control over the world and of us. And in the process, we are cannibalizing each other. It's heartbreaking. You, you get on Facebook, you watch the news, you get in any social media, anything, right? You, you see it out. Again, I, I, this, is an open, this is an open secret. I have driving issues, right? Like, I, I love how Saratoga and Eagle Mountain are growing, and I absolutely hate how it's growing because traffic is unreal. And yesterday, Nicole just called me out. She goes, I'm having a really hard time driving with you anymore because you get so upset. It's like, ah, I just, people just need to stop being stupid, right? Like, don't be stupid with how you drive. And, and, and the thing is, is even me is sort of like, oh, I'm waiting for someone to walk into church that I just road raged at that week, you know? Like, like I remember you. You drive a white F-150, don't you? Sorry. But that's what we're doing, right? We need a king. We need a real king who will come and bring a new and better kingdom. And that's where we're at this morning. We're going to kick off a series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see how this new king brings a new kingdom. Our intention, our hope, our prayer is that as we dive in, we're going to see how this king is a real king, a true king, a powerful king, a good king. And he brings with him a real kingdom. And being a citizen of that kingdom is the only place that we want to be now and forever. So the Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew. There we go. There's some scholarship that abates that. I think they're dumb. All right. Um, sorry, I, don't, I, I disagree. Um, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. Actually, before he was a disciple of Jesus, he was a tax collector. Now, we think, you know, it's, it's, it's tax time right now, and IRS agents, you know, it's like, oh, those terrible IRS. No, 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 no. These are astronomically worse. Because here's what was going on, is that you have Judea, which is, you know, Jewish, and they, they have a proud, long history. But yet, at the time of Jesus, they were, they were occupied by the Roman Empire. 
You had the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greek, and now the Romans. And it's basically, they're going from occupation to occupation to occupation to occupation. And so the culture is being dominated by these Greco-Roman uh, leaders. And, and a part of that was to tax their colonies. And so what they did is they thought, hey, this is going to be genius. Instead of having these Roman people come in and tax them, we're going to get people from amongst their, their people group to tax them for us. Well, that goes over like a lead balloon, right? Because basically they would take these, these people who are like, oh, I can make money off of this. And what tax collectors did was they would go around and they would shake people down. They would say, okay, you owe this to the Roman Empire and you owe this to, to us. And they would literally extort people for extra money. That does not go over very well, right? It's kind of like, how can I uh, screw over my own people so that I can make more money? And so they're outcasts. They were traitors. They were, they were outside of main society, right? They were viewed upon as crooks and horrible, horrible people. Well, the thing is, in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to see where Jesus actually calls Matthew to come and follow him. Matthew had not earned anything. He was not worthy. He was not a good guy. He wasn't so special and adorable and good that Jesus says, I want you to be one of the only 12 to follow me in this way, right? I want you to be one of the inner 12 because you're such a good person. No, he was horrible. He literally found him in the pits of his crookedness and greed and, and, and deception. And he says, follow me. And then Jesus takes it even further. He goes to Matthew's house where it says in, in I think it's Matthew 9, 9, uh, somewhere in there where it says Jesus hangs out with Matthew and his other tax collector friends and his sinner friends. Jesus is very comfortable with sinners. And that's good news because that means he's comfortable with us. And, and he was criticized for it. Jesus is, is viewed a friend of sinners. And, and they meant that as you're a friend of sinners. And he goes, yeah, I am. He takes that and he turns it around. He says, and I can be a friend to you too. So Matthew goes from serving the king of greed to surrendering to the king of mercy. The, the gospel of Matthew is written around the year 60 AD. So it was about 30, you know, 25, 30 years after Jesus was, was crucified. And, and uh, uh, Matthew and a couple of the other disciples were kind of like, you know, we should really write down what Jesus was about, who he was, what he did, said, what he did. And so he writes down the sayings, the sermons, the teachings, the miracles, the actions, the day-to-day -day grind, and ultimately the death and resurrection and ascension of, of Jesus. And so some of the main themes that we're going to see throughout the entire book of the Gospel of Matthew is, is this. Number one, Jesus is a Messiah and a king who, is, who is, they've been looking for for generations. Jesus fulfills prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament scripture. Number two, Jesus is the king bringing a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And number three, Jesus invites us to be citizens of that kingdom. It's, it's something new and radically different from the world system, and we are called to be a part of it. Since Matthew um, was a, a very close disciple and friend and followed Jesus 24-7 for about three years, He's pretty qualified to write this, right? And so we're going to dig in. Now, Now, just a note here is that 
we're, we're going to try to do about 28 chapters in about 30-some weeks. This is going to take us a, a while. Hang with me. Some of you are like, yes, I'm excited. And some of you are like, oh, this is going to get... No, we're going to do our best to, to, to let the Scripture speak for itself because it's really, really good, right? But that means that some weeks we're going to be chap- covering like two chapters or an entire chapter. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all word for word. That's up for you during the week to do, right? And so there's going to be times like today, we're actually just going to just look at a couple verses out of two chapters, but we're going to skim through it. So just hang with me. We're going to have a good time. Um, usually we have uh, the scripture. We, the last couple series, we actually been putting the scripture onto the sheet. I was excited about that, but then I also was like, I want you to bring your Bibles. The Bible is the Word of God, and, and we want to dig into it, right? So, so bring your Bible so you can take notes in it and follow along, or you can follow along on your phone or, or on the screen here too. All right, so we're going to dig in here. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Are you guys ready? This is just hold on to your seats because this starts off with a bang, all right? Here we go. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. What? This is exciting. Genealogy. We're going to get 17 verses that are all a list of names. Right? Like, this is your introduction. You got to catch your... See, this is the difference between today and 2,000 years ago because extended details genealogies were so critical back then. Why? Because it established a legal precedence. They were used to, to prove the authority, the credibility, the rights, the inheritance of a person. See, I can say I'm Jason Queering, right? Or I can say I'm Jason Queering, son of Alden, son of John, son, you know, and, I can, and you can then go through my genealogical record to see, oh, okay, so you actually come from some line of authority and inheritance and blah, 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 right? And so back then, this was so, so important because it proved who Jesus really was. Jesus was legitimate. He literally is the true king that goes all the way back to Abraham, who was the first called by God, and David, who was the first king that was called by God. So if you see if, if between verses 1 and, and 17, it has this list of names, but then in verse 17, you see that it says, that there were 14 generations between Abraham and David. Now, what's the significance of that? I said before, Abraham was the first one called. The promise of God was established through Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he basically, he pulls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. And then he establishes this covenant. Back then, covenants were everything. And, and God takes Abraham out into the desert, and in the customs of the day, he says, take these animals, split them in half, lay the halves of the animals on, on a path, and then what they would make a covenant is that they would hold hands and they would walk together. The two parties that were making this covenant together would walk through the split halves of the animals, and they would say, if I break this covenant, may it be so with me. That's pretty graphic pretty intense, right? But if you, if you remember what happens in Genesis is that Abraham is waiting for God to show up, waiting to, for God to show up, waiting for God to show up, and so he falls asleep. Well, while Abraham is, fall, is asleep, 
God appears like a torch and goes through on his own. What's the significance of that? God, by going through it on his own, basically says this. If I break this covenant, it's on me. If you break this covenant, it's still on me. That's pretty huge. How many of us would be willing to enter into a, into a covenant, an agreement, saying, if I mess up, it's on me. If you mess up, it's still on me. I will pay the price no matter what. That's huge. That is the promise established way, 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 way back with Father Abraham, right? 14 generations from then to David. They were like, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. Okay, here's David. David was considered the fulfillment of that promise. Like, life is good. We are conquering. We are expanding. We are growing. We're building. Like, Israel was in its heyday as a kingdom under King David. Now, we know the rest of the story. David was a great guy, and he was a horrible guy, right? He was all that in between. But yet, there's a promise to this fulfillment. And then it says, and there was 14, gen or 14 generations between David and the exile. Well, basically, the exile is the fall. They had this promise. They had this fulfillment. And what do they do with it? They chased after other gods. And so God punishes them, right? We don't like to think about punishment. We're like, no, 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 no. I want to live my best life. Well, what happens if you're being silly? What happens if you're going against God? Like, God's not just going to say, okay, go ahead and play out in the street. Just do you do you, right? No, he's going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to bring, I'm going to discipline you. And sometimes discipline has to be pretty drastic. And so he literally sends his people into exile. That's the fall. That's the discipline. But then 14 generations from the fall to Jesus. Jesus is salvation. Now here's the cool thing. See the story within this story in these first boring verses of, of Matthew? It's the gospel. God creates us for relationship. We have fall and Jesus pays the price. He restores us. He reconciles us. He brings us back to himself. So in this boring, dry passage, we see Jesus' legitimate heir to the throne of the world, he and he only, and he's a really good king because he's going to pay the price for everything that has happened to that point and since then. Pretty, pretty huge, right? Um, now what's, what's interesting is that all but five mentioned in this genealogy are men. There's five women. Now, here's the thing. You, women in that day were not considered important. Like, we still have a ways to go, but we've come a long ways. Let's be real. Is that women were not viewed as worthy enough to be put into these genealogical accounts because, well, that's just a woman, right? Look at who he includes. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Most of these are not even Jewish women. And some of them are not women of good repute, right? You have a prostitute. You have an incest-raped lady. You have a, a, a woman who commits adultery. Well, it allows the king to commit adultery to her. You have an unwed mother. You, you have a, a foreigner who's wandering around with, with her in-laws, Right? It's very intentional at who, and, and then there's the guys, right? Because there's some guys that are really good guys, and then there's some that are just blatantly evil guys. And then there's a lot that are in between, or maybe even both. God has sovereignty 
over it all. God can use anyone and everyone for his design. Now, we can either be critical of God for that. How could you use David, who is an adulterous, manic-depressant murderer? And, and it's David as is is a man after God's own heart? Well, God forgives us, and he can still use us. None of us are beyond the power of his grace. That is good news for you and I. Because at our worst moment, we're still not beyond the grace of God. God can use anybody. This king can use anybody. Now, here's the thing. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, tells of Jesus' human identity. And then verses 18 through 25 tells of Jesus' divine identity. It tells the story about how Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. And, and then uh, the Holy Spirit comes and, and puts Mary with child in a miraculous way. And then the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says, hey, she's, she's pregnant. It's, it's through the Holy Spirit. Please don't divorce her. Um, you're going to raise this child because he is going to be the savior of the world, right? In verse 21, it says that this miracle baby is to be called Jesus, which Jesus means the Lord saves. Talk about the meaning of a name. This miracle child has the name the Lord saves, and he would indeed go on to save his people from their sins. And then in verse uh, 23, it says that Jesus is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is probably one of the most miraculous, crazy, intense verses in the entire Bible. God, the creator, is with us. If you ever are tempted to deny the deity of Jesus, that, God, that Jesus is, in fact, part of the triune Godhood, this is a passage that, that states it very clearly. God with us. Jesus is God with flesh on. And uh, a lot of people didn't like that, right? We get to chapter 2, verse 1. It says that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Micah in the Old Testament. Uh, prophet uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Um, there's a lot of significance there as well, but we're going to keep on moving. King Herod was the king over Judea at that time. Herod was just like the tax collectors, right? Like they would basically come in, they'd find a low-hanging fruit of who is someone who is swarmy enough that would turn against their own people and rule them for us, right? Like Herod was not very liked. He was only half Jewish. He was not a legitimate heir to the throne of Judea. He was only there because the Roman Empire said, we can control you to control your own people. And you're not really a part of us. You're not really a part of them. It's no wonder that Herod was incredibly insecure and violent. Herod, it's proven that he, he murdered most, most of his own family. I mean, that, that's, if there's ever a character witness, you know, have you, have you killed anyone in your own family? Yeah, most of them. And you're king. Okay. Why? Because he was so insecure of what was going on. He knew that if the real legitimate heir to the throne of Judea would show up, he'd be out. No one would listen to him. And so he, controlled, he tried to control them both with violence and murder, but then he also went to the powers that be within his culture, within his time, the religious leaders. And he kept them happy. How? By building religious buildings, renovating, doing a big temple renovation project, 
um, basically saying, hey, I'm going to take care of you if you keep your people under control for me. And the religious leaders were basically saying, hey, don't rock the boat. We can go to our temple, we can make our sacrifices, we can follow our law. As long as we don't mess with him, he won't mess with us. Just be a good boy, be a good girl. Don't just go with the status quo. We're all okay. Well, the problem is, is Jesus does not go well with the status quo. And so when these, uh, these magi, these rulers from the east show up, saying, hey, we're here to worship the new king, Herod just loses it, right? And he tries to trick them into saying, hey, yeah, uh, I want to go worship him too. Let me know when you find him, right? Because I'm going to go worship them as well. Well, the, the, the magi come and, um, and they bring very valuable gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, uh, oftentimes people say gold is a gift for royalty. Frankincense uh, is a gift for, for deity. And myrrh is, is basically burial spices. Hmm. These are pagan kings from who knows where, and they get it. They come and seek after the king to surrender and bow down and worship. Herod can't stand that. So fortunately, they, they come, they give the gifts, and, um, and God appears to them in a dream and says, hey, don't go back to Herod. They go back uh, and, and leave him. Herod freaks out. God reveals to Joseph said, hey, get out of here because Herod's going to do something bad. They take the gifts of immeasurable value and they use it to, to escape and flee to Egypt. Right? They go into exile, which again is a fulfillment um, of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in, in, this is in verses uh, Matthew 2, 13 through 15, where they flee to Egypt. And then uh, um, in verse... Uh, verses 16 through 18, Herod then orders all male children, two and under, to be murdered in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Can you imagine? Guys, this is still kind of happening in our world, right? Genocide is a thing. And it's violent, it's awful, it's terrible, but it's the way the, rule, the world rules, right? It's an earthly way of ruling, and so that's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Well, in verse 19 through 23, we see that after a short time, Herod actually dies. God appears again to Joseph and says, hey, return, return home-ish, <laughs> but don't go back to Bethlehem because guess what? Herod's son, who's just as bad, if not worse, has taken over. So don't go back to Bethlehem. Go up to where go up to where uh, Joseph's mother is up in Nazareth. And that, again, is another fulfillment of prophecy. That's quite a story, right? I mean, you, you, think, you think about the humanity of that. Joseph and Mary were real people. Real babies were killed. Real kings came to give gifts to this infant child. Why? Because God put it on their hearts and their minds that this was someone special. Some people surrendered to that. Most people fought against that with everything that they had. Now, there's a lot going on here, but there's three things I want to pull out from this this morning. Number one, the real king, the real Messiah is here. 
all of this story points to Jesus, right? All of human history. And I love how Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. If you look at Luke, Luke actually starts the opposite way. Luke, who's writing to, because Matthew is writing to Jewish people. Luke is probably writing more to Gentile people from what I've, from what I've understood. And so he actually starts with, with Jesus and goes back all the way to, Abra, uh, to, to Adam. And so Luke wants to appeal to all humanity. But, but here's the thing. Ever since the beginning of time, everything has been leading to this baby king. And he is now born and he fulfills. Look at Jesus is kind of like, dude, by the time I'm a couple of years old, I've already fulfilled so many prophecies. What have you done? You know, what were you doing? What were, what were you doing as a toddler, right? Jesus is the real king. He is the real Messiah, and, and he is here. If Jesus is the one true real king, guess what? There has never been or never will be another one true king. Being a king means that you're exclusive. The world doesn't like that. We're called to surrender to Jesus as our one true king. Yeah, there's governing rulers. Yeah, there's all these other things like that that we need to be respectful for and everything like that. But as far as like surrendering, we need to surrender to Christ because he is one true king. Don't be like Herod. Don't drive ourselves crazy trying to fight against this king. He will win. <laughs> Don't drive ourselves crazy. Don't, don't destroy other people in our pursuit to establish our own sovereignty. That's the original sin, and it's been what will be sin, the motivator of sin, till Jesus returns again to destroy sin once and for all, right? Is we want our sovereignty, but we need to be like the Magi who peacefully and lovingly surrender to Jesus as the king. So here's a question. How is Jesus calling you to surrender to him as the one true real king over this world and of our lives. How are we being called to surrender to Jesus as the true king? Number two, Jesus's kingdom is a new kind of kingdom. It's not just another horrible regime, another ruling class that's going to screw everything up and mess, us or mess around with us and dis disappoint us and, and, and just destroy everything, right? Jesus brings a new kingdom. That's different from the world's. We're going to talk about this a lot more in weeks to come, so I'm not going to elaborate on it here. But we need to know that Jesus' kingdom is radically different than the world's. The king and his kingdom will disrupt. It will upset the status quo of this world. So here's the question. What would it look like to be a part of Christ's kingdom? The kingdom of heaven. How is this kingdom going to disrupt our world, our lives, us as followers of him? To be citizens of that kingdom. And then last, number three, Jesus' kingdom displays the sovereignty and providence of Jesus as king. We look at this story. It starts off with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan wandering around in the desert. Again, he, Jesus, God, God didn't choose Abraham because he was so holy and so good. He was literally a pagan, worshiping pagan gods, wandering out in the desert, living as the world lives, and God takes him. I don't know why. I don't know why. Other than that God loves you, 
and he chooses you too. He wants to establish his kingdom through you. He wants to reveal his sovereignty through your life. We say we don't, we don't pay a dime for social media marketing. We don't put up billboards. I mean, as good as it gets for us is those two little flag signs out there and a couple A-frame signs. It's all we do. I don't pay extra on Facebook to get more hits. I don't, I don't pay extra on Google to get more hits. Guess what? You are our billboards. We are called to be the billboards for the kingdom of God. In our everyday lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our places of work, at our schools, at our clubs, at the places we work, work out, play, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're to reveal just a taste of what this new kingdom, this new king looks like. Nothing. And if you're kind of like, oh, well, I can't give anything because I'm to this, I'm not enough that, I've done this, or I haven't done that. Maybe you've been told your whole life that you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you're to this, you're to that. Guess what? You're still not out of the reach of the king of grace and mercy. He loves you. We have to walk in that reality. We are citizens of that kingdom kingdom of love, a kingdom of freedom, a, a kingdom of transformation. If we're insisting on all this crud from the world of, of oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of God, I'm a part of his kingdom, and I'm this and this and this and this and this, what are we doing? We're trying to drag our filth into his perfect, pure, free kingdom. We're trying to bring the shackles of enslavement of the world and its system and all the things that are going on right now, and it's getting crazy. I don't want to sound like a curmudgeonly old guy, but at the same time, it's getting nuts out there. And it's getting nuts in here. Because we wrestle with it. We fight with it. We, we, we battle those allegiances to different things. And we want to put those onto our, our, our religion. We need to make Christ our king. Let him determine, let him decide who we are and what we're about. Our allegiances to him. Matthew 1, 21 says it clearly. You are to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. If he's saving us, it means there's something wrong. I oftentimes hear, I don't like the whole idea of salvation because what do I need to be saved from? I'm fine. I, I used to say, if the world is fine, then explain Jersey Shore. I'm glad parents explain it to your kids. I'll let you. Right? If the world is so good, then explain what's going on. The Lord saves, and that's really good news for us. And he will save his people from their sins. From the beginning, it's clear who this king is, what he's here to do. This story from the beginning is different. So here's the last question. What is going on in your life right now that the king might be wanting to use to reveal himself in you, to you, or through you? It could be good things. It could be bad things. It could be things from the past. It could be things that we're worried about in the future. It could be something that's right now. It could be our struggles. It could be our successes. I, I don't know. It's all under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and provision. What is God wanting to use right now 
to grow us, to grow our relationship with him, to mature us, and to reveal himself through us. Are we allowing and surrendering to it, or are we fighting against it? So here's the big idea for Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is the king, and we are his kingdom. So to move from belief to action, from knowing to doing, sorry, this is the last question for real this time. Ask ourselves this question, is Jesus the king of my life? Is Jesus who I surrender to? Is Jesus who I bow down to? Is Jesus who I worship alone? Is Jesus who I give my allegiance to? Is Jesus what I think about when I wake up and ponder on when I lie down? Am I about his kingdom or my own kingdom or the world's kingdom? That's kind of an open question. That's what I want to leave us with this morning. If Jesus is king and we are called to be citizens of his kingdom, we are his kingdom. What does that look like? Let's do this inventory this week. I, I'd encourage you actually this week to, to go through the questions on the, on the discussion card. To, to take, it's two chapters, take, take you know, 15 verses a day, take one chunk a day. Just read through it and just ask the questions. What does it mean for Jesus to be king over my life? Amen? Let's pray. Mighty King, <laughs> this morning, um, we want to just surrender to you. We want to bow down. We want to we worship. We want to stop fighting. We want to stop insisting on our, on our own stuff. We want to stop doubting. We want to stop fearing. We want to stop hiding. God, you are the creator of all things. You know us and this world far better than we ever could. And so God, help us to boldly, lovingly, passionately surrender to you. Help us to be ambassadors of that. God, that we wouldn't yell and shout and judge people who need you, but instead we would be a loving presence of truth and of compassion, of grace and mercy, of purity. God, help us in our thoughts, help us in our relationships, help us in our actions. God, we are not going to be perfect, but God, we want to be surrendered to where where when we do mess up, God, I pray that we can, can come back in humility and first and foremost to confess to you, just say, God, I've messed up. But God, we also know that you love us. You forgive us. You already paid the price for us like we, we celebrated the last week. God, you conquered the power of that sin on the cross and through the empty grave. God, help us to walk in that identity. We belong to your kingdom. You are our king. God, help us to, to invite others to join in to that citizenship as well. God, I thank you for each one here, those who are listening and watching online now or later on. God, I pray that your spirit would just touch us. You would speak truth into our hearts, into our minds. God, help us to see the Grima worm tongues that are trying to 
usurp your authority in our lives. Open our eyes to see what's going on. God, you are our king. We love you and we worship you and we serve you. Amen.